Again, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here, and, and uh, I'm glad to be here. And this, uh, I, I love the cooler weather. Um, I don't know if it's just because I know it's football season. Uh, Packs want to know, how are the Vikings doing? Not as good. Not as good. Just going to throw that out there. Um, anyways, glad you're able to make it here. Uh, I know it's kind of a little, little chilly and rainy. Um, after church, I just want to throw this out there. There is a little handout that you have about uh, this kickoff thing that we're doing. Um, this isn't just us. This is the entire church. Uh, Abby, uh, the female vocalist that was just singing, uh, she's actually getting baptized uh, in a very cold uh, lake uh, by me. Um, and so um, Pastor Steve and Cora said, hey, you're already going to be getting cold and wet, so why don't you just baptize everybody? Uh, so uh, they, they copped out, and I have the honor and privilege to uh, do some baptisms this afternoon up at Snail Lake. So if you have that, the directions on that are wrong. Uh, they were printed from, from downtown, but uh, Snail like it's super easy. Jump on 35E, you go north, you get off in Victoria, and then guess what? You turn right on Snail Lake Road or Boulevard, and that's it. Two, two turns, you're there. Um, so anyways, we'd love to have you there. It's going to be free food. There's a lot of bouncy houses and climbing walls and all that. Maybe it's fun. I don't, it's not to me. I'm old. Uh, but uh, they used to be uh, fun. So uh, anyways, love for you to come out to that and get some food and, and just partake of that and, and worship and celebrate with us with these baptisms. So uh, today is kind of a standalone sermon. It's going to be kind of part two, if you will. We kind of were talking about the kingdom of God and looked at that last week and, and kind of kicked off our what we're calling our, our 2020 initiative. And as we look at this next year of uh, things that we want to do collectively as a church, as far as scripture reading together, as far as uh, trying to minister to people that we're uh, close with. And, and the, one of the biggest things, though, is going to be starting a uh, another location. So what we do here in St. Paul, but up in Columbia Heights. And so Drew Zolke, my, my counterpart, if you will, he's downtown right now uh, preaching and kind of uh, casting vision for that. And so we've, we've done that. And so I don't really want to take the time to talk about why we do locations, but I want to talk about our passion behind church planting and, and just based on scripture. So we're going to be all over the place in scripture uh, today. And so I want to jump into that. Before I do, though, next week, uh, if you're uh, curious about what we're going to be doing, we're starting a new uh, series called The Cry of the Soul of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is an Old Testament prophet. And, uh, and, and, and in, in this book, Nehemiah, every time that somebody preaches to this book, or at least every time I've heard it preached, it's always for some building project, right? Some are trying to raise some funds because he's building a wall around Jerusalem, and uh, so that's kind of what it's always preached at, of like, hey, we need money, so we're going to preach through Nehemiah. That's not the case. We need money, yes, but we're not doing some building project. Um, and so, but the whole point behind this is Nehemiah is just, he's just crying out to God. As a matter of fact, in the, throughout the course of that book, he has 10 different prayers that we're going we're gonna to look at. And just for me personally, just being challenged to just pray more and pray honestly uh, like the prophet does. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to just journeying through that book. That'll take us right up to Christmas. Uh, which, uh, again, we'll, we'll jump into a new series for Christmas. And then next year, um, we'll be preaching through another book. I don't know what that book is quite yet, but we'll, we'll figure that out in Christmas. Okay, a house divided. When I think of a house divided, I was trying to, trying to think, what, what, would, what would this look like and what could this mean? There's a couple different things, but, but the one that I kept coming back, and again, just because it's football season, that kind of thing, was, was Remember the Titans. And I know it's an older movie, and, and maybe some of you haven't seen it, um, but it's based on a true story. And, and Denzel Washington plays this coach uh, that, that comes in. It's, it's right during the integration that's happening in the, in the, in the, the South. And so you have these two schools. you got a white school and a black school, and they're trying to come together, and they, they're just fighting constantly. Constantly between um, the black players and the white players, and, and it's just it's just bad. 
And, and this constantly comes up. So, so Denzel takes him out to the, to the fields of, of the Gettysburg, uh, uh, where, the, where the Battle of Gettysburg took place. And he said, right, a house divided cannot stand. And, he, and he's even saying, oh, even this football team, we've, we've got to be united. And it's just this beautiful imagery of a house divided. And so we get these, we're introduced to these real people that once lived, uh, Gary and, and Julius and, and a, a white guy, a white linebacker and a, and a, and a black defensive end. And, and they are enemies, right? They just, they only care about themselves and, and their players, but then they end up joining together and it makes this beautiful, beautiful scene of a house that is divided, cannot stand. And so they have unity. So I want to go back to last week, just because it ties in a little bit, this life from death. I've just been uh, really quickly going through John chapter 12, uh, 20 through 31. So let me just read what we did last week, just to kind of get us a little bit more in context. Um, it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And this is going to be Passover. This is a distinctly Jewish festival that you had to be Jewish ethnically to be able to participate in this unless you converted to um, uh, Judaism, which maybe these Greeks did, but we talked about how, excuse me, Jesus in, in Ephesians, he breaks down this wall of hostility, that it's no longer just Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek, it's, it's, it's Jews and, and everybody, that anybody, any ethnic group that's even outside of Jewish ethnicity is able to worship, but that hasn't quite happened yet. And so these Greeks come to this festival. They've heard some really amazing things that Jesus has been doing. And they came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We want to we meet this man who's doing all these miracles, even raising people from the dead. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew uh, and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And then he says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It simply means prophet, or excuse me, it means Messiah. That I am the promised Messiah that's going to set uh, God's people free from their sin. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to die. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and it dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And so just last week, looking at this passage of saying, yep, this is for sure a personal thing. I need to set my preferences aside. I need to set my desires aside to follow after Jesus Christ. But it's also true of us collectively. And this is why we plant churches. This is why we are doing this location thing in Columbia Heights. If you think about it, Pastor Drew has been at Hope for, I think, nine years. Uh, he's been there for a long time. And he's going to be cutting ties. It's difficult, right? He's not going to be there on Sunday mornings anymore. He's not going to be rubbing shoulders with his friends and coworkers that he's been with together. And he's taking people and families from that church to go start another church. It's difficult. And so that kernel must die. Why? In order to produce much more fruit. And so it is with us personally as well. So this week, though, I want to look at this idea of a house divided. That phrase comes from Mark chapter 3, which we're going to look at in a little bit. But that phrase comes from the Bible. It's a house divided. It, it, it comes up a lot of times in popular culture. It came up in, in Marvel's uh, Civil War between uh, Captain America and, and uh, Iron Man. And they use this phrase. It's right, it's right on, the, on the front like poster. 
right? Just quoting scripture, Jesus's words, right? And then it also was quoted uh, by Abraham Lincoln uh, before the Civil War really broke out. And he just said, a house divided cannot stand. And a lot of people uh, credit this uh, statement to him, but it wasn't. It was Jesus. And so I want to look at this. Uh, passage of, of finishing John chapter 12, uh, 20 through 31, but then also Mark 3. And, and I, all I want to do is make some observations. That as we walk through a lot of scripture, I want to just look at uh, who has authority and who doesn't have authority. Right? Does the church have authority? Is, is Jesus the one that has authority? Does, does Satan have authority? And so there's something in the passage that um, that Ben read that I want to point out. So simply all I want us to do is I want us to make observations about Satan then. All right, by then I mean in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament and some of these passages that we're, we were reading, what is it about Satan that stands out that we can make some observations about? Now every analogy breaks down, okay? So if you are familiar with uh, remember the Titans. Uh, Gary Bertier's best friend's name is Ray Buds, right? You probably don't remember that name, but he's the fullback who just wants to do everything he can to, to split up the team, and he just wants his white players on the team, right? So Ray Buds, I'm not equating Ray Buds with Satan, okay? But, but every analogy breaks down here, okay? But what I want to do is I want to go through passages of Scripture and just make some observations about Satan, about the evil one about the enemy. And so John chapter 12, 20 through 31, which Ben read, this is 27 through 31, says this. Now my soul is troubled, right? I, I'm gonna die. I'm going to be murdered and crucified and betrayed by my closest friends and family members. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That he wants to give his father the glory that is due his name. And the only way that the father can be glorified is if his son, fully God, fully man, comes and dies for our sins. That is how his father is glorified. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, right? I have glorified my name, the father's saying, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. I know the father. The father and I are, are one. I am he and he is mine. We are the same so this voice of the Father talking that you all heard is for your benefit. This is for, for proof that I am that I am. I am who I say I am. Now is the time for judgment on this world. And he says, now is the prince of, now this prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is Satan. That Jesus actually calls him, gives him that title three times in the Gospel of John. The prince of of this world, that he has power and authority in this globe, on this world, and even other uh, planets, if you will. Not that there's anybody up there, but I guess he's free to roam around up there. I, just, I made that up. I don't well, well, I'll get, okay, foot and mouth, let's move on. <laughs> All right. So what are observations? All right, he says this, observations about Satan then, that he is a prince of this world, and then he will be driven out. Okay, so there's part of this that we're going to be moving forward is when is this will be? 
When will the will be happen, right? Has it happened in the past? Is it going to happen in the future? Is it, is it true now? When is Satan going to be driven out? Well, it hasn't happened yet as far as this text is concerned. I want to I take a quick look at the book of Revelation. If you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, it, it, it can be very confusing uh, that you can read through it. A lot of people stay away from it. Some churches obsess with it. Uh, and we're not one of those churches that I want to be able to look at this book and say, this is an allegory. This is apocalyptic, very difficult language. And what is it about this allegory that we can say and look to very clear passages? Can they line up? Do they teach the same, the same thing? So I want to use what is plain to give clarity on the allegorical. Um, if, if you grew up in the church, especially in the, in the early 90s, um, did any of you read the Left Behind series books, or at least familiar with, with those? Okay, a handful of you. That, right, that was me, and, and, and I read these books, and, and, and really what they're doing is they're taking the book of, of Revelation and saying, everything's going to happen in the future, okay? I'm not gonna, we're not going to preach on the book of Revelation right now. It's, in, it's the last book in the Bible, and so a lot of people talk about the end times and all these different things that happen in that book. So what I want to do is use what is plain to give clarity to the allegorical. So what can we look at this allegory to help give us what is clear? And again, an allegory uh, is something that points to something else, okay? That, it, that it's an image of something not to be taken literally to point us to what is clear. A beautiful example of this is the line, the witch in the wardrobe, all right? That in C.S. Lewis's book of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis is not saying that Satan looks like this white witch and that Jesus looks like a lion. He's using an, an allegory of saying, yep, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And so then, and, and all these different things that, that, that are going on in that, it's an allegory. But we can take that allegory and get to some very real, awesome truths of what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate. And so when we get to Revelation, we have to keep that in mind. So he says this, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, heaven, having a key to the abyss. What is the abyss? Right? We, we don't know. He just, just keeps this, it's just imagery, okay, if you will. So this angel comes down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seizes, right? He just lassoes the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. Right? He's making very clear who this is, from the serpent in the garden to the dragon that comes out of the sea in the book of Revelation, anything that is evil in this world, who is the devil or Satan, and it says he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. When even just these verses right here, some people will take it extremely literally and say that Satan someday in the future will be bound for a thousand years. I'm not going to get into that, but to take that literally is just kind of confusing because this is an allegory. And a and thousand years in the Bible just means completion, all right, of, of, of some, some perfect amount of time. Uh, the psalmist uses this by saying that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that doesn't mean like there's like some line, like, hey, that's God's property. He owns, owns those cattle. He doesn't actually own all the cattle. That's, it's, it's an allegory, right? He, he owns everything. That's the whole, whole point of that. Okay, so what can we see from this allegorical imagery uh, of, of what's going to happen or maybe what has happened, which is going to be kind of the point here, is that somewhere in here, Satan is going to be bound and he's going to be, uh, his power is going to be detained 
for a long period of time so that he can no longer deceive the nations, all right? So he once had the ability to deceive the nations, or maybe he currently does have the ability to deceive the nations. That depends on when the will-be-driven-out thing comes into play. All right, so that's what we can see from the allegorical that he once had or maybe has the ability to deceive the nation. So now let's look at the plane. What does the plane teach us about who Satan was? Well, we can go back to Job chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh, the Father. And Satan also came with them. All right, so, so Satan goes with his angels or other angels, people that once were like him or, or angels that he was once like, and he goes into the presence of the Father. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So at one point in time in previous, Job is, is uh, uh, most likely the oldest book that we have in our Bible. So we go back to ancient times, Satan had the ability to roam back and forth and go back and forth from heaven to earth. He had complete freedom and access, and as he would roam about deceiving nations and, and corrupting people and all the different things, this is the freedom and the power and authority that he has or that he once had. So when did that happen? Well, now let's look at observations about Satan now, and we can get this from our New Testament and the rest of the New Testament. Luke chapter 10, Jesus says this. He replied, that's Jesus, I saw Satan, Satan, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus, God himself in the flesh is saying, there was a point in time where I saw Satan get kicked out of heaven that he no longer had this authority and freedom to roam around back and forth. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. And I have given you, my disciples, the church, authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. All right, I think, I think I know a few of you that actually own snakes. Just saying, all right? He's like, it's like the devil, all right? Uh, I don't know of anybody that owns scorpions. That would be another weird thing to own. But right it, again, this is an analogy. This is it's an allegory here. He's saying, but church, I've given you the authority to overcome, here he says, all of the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you as far as Satan is concerned. So observations that we can make is that he has no authority, none whatsoever. Jesus saw him fall and Satan knows this. This is Mark chapter 1, 23 through 26, says, Just then a man in their uh, synagogue who is possessed by an impure spirit, a demonic spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, so this is Mark chapter 1. Mark is the, the, the oldest or the earliest book that we have in our New Testament. It was the first book written in the New Testament. And this is Mark chapter 1. Right off the bat, Jesus starts his ministry. And he's walking around, and he's just trying to introduce who he is to people, but in a way that's not so shocking and jarring that they would just kill him outright in the front, and he wouldn't have a following. All right, he's trying to explain to people who he is and who his father is and what his kingdom is going to be like. And, he, and this demonic, uh, demon-possessed man shows up and says, the demon cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demon here, Satan, knows. He knows the authority and the power that Jesus has, and he knows that his writing uh, or that his, the rest of his life is, is scripted. It's going to come to an end when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And he says, oh, have you come to destroy us? Have you, have you come to set up your throne here now? And Jesus says, be quiet. Don't let the cat out of the bag yet. Jesus said sternly, and then he just says, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. So observations that we can make about Satan now is that he has absolutely no authority and that he knows the authority of Jesus and who he is. One quick thing I want to point out that when we look at Satan and Jesus, they are not equals. Nowhere in scripture does it say they're equal. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite that we can look at uh, John 1 and in the beginning, they got the God created and Jesus created everything and everything is upheld through him. And so we can see that God, Jesus, created an angel called Lucifer and then he chose to fall. He chose to rebel against God. They're not equals. And when we look at scripture, Satan's equal is Michael, the archangel. That's the equal, not Jesus. And so Satan knows all the authority of Jesus and who he is. So when we get to Mark chapter 3, this idea of a, a house divided cannot stand. He says this, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, all right, so, so Jesus is casting out demons. He's, people are demon-possessed, and he keeps casting them out. And the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, say he is possessed by, uh, oh boy, Beelzebub, all right? Beelzebub or Beelzebub, right? He's possessed by Satan. That's just an ancient uh, uh, Aramaic word for Satan, okay? He's, he's possessed by the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against, against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, right? So it's interesting that when Jesus actually uses this analogy, it's a negative thing. It's about Satan, not like our football team or our church. If we're divided, we cannot stand. That's a true statement. But in this particular passage, when he says that, he's talking about the demonic kingdom. That if Satan's kicking his own demons out, how can that stand? If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And he says, in fact, and he switches analogies here, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So in this analogy in verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house. The strong man in this analogy is Satan. Because previously, Satan had all authority. He could deceive nations. He had power, destructive power. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to go into that kingdom. I'm going to go into the strong man's house. I'm going to bind him. And then I'm going to give all authority to my church to go in and plunder what once was his. Then we look to this Silly illustration of Remember the Titans of Gary Bertier yelling at, at Ray Buds, right? Gary binds him, if you will, right? That he says, hey, I want this team to be all white. And Gary says, no, 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 no. That's not going to work because right now our house is divided and you're causing division. And so he binds him by kicking him off the team. Because you're no longer part of this team. 
We're going to have unity. So he binds him and kicks him off the team so there isn't division. In the same uh, biblical account, but in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus, it's recorded that he said this after that verse. He says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Something's changing. There's no longer just this era of Satan and the devil and demons to be able to deceive people. He comes and he says, the kingdom of God is already here. But it's some kind of invisible thing. It's some war and principalities that we can't tangibly touch and see. But the kingdom of God is here and we have the authority and power to cast out demons and to go into that kingdom of darkness. So another observation that we can make about Satan is that he has no authority. He knows the authority of Jesus and who he is and that he is bound. And so we see in the life of Jesus Christ that when he is killed on the cross, we see the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 come to fruition. That Jesus will crush the, the head of the serpent he will destroy him, but Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. Jesus died on the cross, and it hurt him. It bruised him, but he walked out of the grave, as we just sang. But in a definite victory was won when Jesus lost his life on that cross because Jesus didn't remain in the grave, and because of that, Satan lost his power. And so what do we see? What, can, what are the observations that we can make about the kingdom of God now? Well, when we look at Matthew chapter 28, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, this is his disciples, his followers, the church. These are the last words that Jesus is gonna say well, on this earth to his, his followers. And he says, all authority. It's it shifted. Satan no longer has the authority to see the nation. Satan no longer has the authority to, to do as he will. I do, and my church does. So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what's he say? I'm gonna stick around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna do this thing. No, because that's, that's not, we're not there yet. There's still this invisible war happening where people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we see the authority of Jesus being transferred to the church to share the gospel and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the observations that we can make about the kingdom of God now is that our king holds all authority. He's given us the authority. When we look at Matthew chapter 16, 18, I've mentioned this before, but it says the gates of hell will not stand against his church. The gates of hell will not stand. This is a, gates are defensive, right? I have a gate uh, at my house, right? It's not in the front, it's just in the back, doesn't matter, who cares? If, if someone's trying to get into my house, I don't run outside and try to like rip the gate door to try to push back the robber. That's not, that's not what I do. In that analogy, in Matthew chapter 16, 18, and what, what he's talking about, the strong man being bound, the strong man's bound, and the church now has the authority and the power with the gospel of Jesus Christ to go into his turf, to go into his territory, and we get to beat him down. 
Because all authority has been given to us and the gates of hell, Satan's gates can't stand. They cannot stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, Satan's bound. He has no authority when we speak and we preach the name of Jesus Christ. Or as Martin Luther once sang, one little word will fell him. And that little word is Jesus. So when we get to Colossians chapter 2, these are some amazing verses. With all of that context in mind, Jesus says, what, what Paul said, excuse me, the Apostle Paul says that when you were dead in your sins, notice what he says here. You were dead in your sins. You weren't treading water, hopefully trying to stay afloat, and someone comes by with a little life preserver and throws it to you, and all you got to do is hang out. You were 10,000 leagues under the sea, dead. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh and your religion or trying to do good to outweigh your bad and all these things that I'm trying to do to earn salvation, you were dead. And then he says, God made you alive. I didn't do anything. God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. That Satan is also named the accuser of the brethren. So that at the point where he could go back and forth, that imagine he could stand there and he could look at God the Father and he could say, look at that guy. Look at that woman. See how sinful and wicked they are. And Jesus says, you can't do that anymore. I died for their sins. There can be no legal indebtedness. He canceled it, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made them a public spectacle of them, triumphing them by the cross. What I love about this analogies that we've been looking at, these analogies that we've been looking at, Satan thinks he's won. Ray Buds thinks he's won. Let me explain what happens if you don't remember the story. So Ray Buds, if you don't know anything about football, that's okay. Ray Buds is trying to defend and block his quarterback. Okay, the guy's got the ball. The quarterback uh, isn't looking. He's looking the other direction. That's just what quarterbacks do. All right, and so the, 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 the fullback here, he's supposed to block this defensive player. And what's he do? The defensive player comes flying through, and Ray Buds just lets him pass. His quarterback gets hit and ends up breaking his arm. And in that moment, Ray Buds thinks, I won. I won the victory. Now we get to have my white quarterback on the team. But guess what? Him, by thinking he won this victory, was actually his defeat. Because that is what made Gary say, you're out, you're off the team. I'm going to bind you. Then we look at the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, that when we think that, man, the white witch thinks she's won. As she plunges that knife into Aslan's chest, he's on the, the round table, and they sing and they worship and they dance because they think they've killed Aslan and they worship in that moment thinking they've won. But in reality, that was the death blow of themselves because the table breaks and innocent blood is spilled and Aslan rises from the dead. And it's an analogy of the greatest story that's ever been told that sounds too good to be true, that Satan kills Jesus. And in that moment, he thinks He's won, but by doing that, he deals himself the fatal blow, and Jesus binds him and kicks him out and says, no longer does your kingdom have the authority. It is but my church. It is our authority to share the gospel of Jesus Christ until all have heard. And so observations about the kingdom of God now is our king holds all authority, and we are legally set free from our debt. 
We couldn't do it. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive. And he did that by nailing our sins to the cross with his own body. And finally, we get to Acts chapter 28, 28. Second to last verse in the, in the book of Acts says this, therefore, I want you, church, to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen to all ethnic groups, and they will listen. This is the gospel, and Satan's words have no power or authority anymore. And so the observations that we can make about the kingdom of God now is that our king holds all authority. And we have legally been set free from our debt, and now we can preach the power of the gospel to all people with authority. That's what we've been given as a church. To quote C.S. Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, R.C. Sproul, um, I was actually in class the other day, and, and uh, I think it was Paul, but Paul said it, I don't know where I was, but he was like, hey man, your, your boy said this. And I was like, Martin Luther? No, 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 your other boy. You know, and, I, and I kept naming names, and he was like, no, no, man, I think he said C.S. or uh, R.C. Sproul. I got a lot of boys, apparently, that I, that I like to quote old dead guys. But let me quote R.C. Sproul. He says this, even at this moment, as I'm discussing this question, right, he's, he's mulling over this question of Satan's authority and power are limited and subordinate to the authority that is veiled in or vested in Christ. Christ right now is the king of this earth. His kingdom is invisible and not everybody acknowledges it. People are giving more allegiance to the prince of darkness than to the prince of peace, but that is an act of usurpation and the part of Satan. His power is restricted, limited, and temporal. Temporal. What has happened briefly is this. The power, power and authority of Satan has been dealt a fatal blow by Christ. He goes on to say the cross, the incarnation, him as God taking on flesh, becoming fully God and fully man, the resurrection of winning the victory over death and his ascension of leaving this earth and going back to the Father tremendously weakened any power or authority that Satan enjoyed, but it didn't annihilate him. It didn't annihilate him. We haven't come there yet, right? That will come later, he says, when Christ completes his work of redemption with the consummation of his kingdom, when, that, when Jesus returns and he now takes this invisible kingdom and makes it a real, literal, physical kingdom, Sproul goes on to say, all things will be brought in captivity to him and every knee will bow to him, including the fallen angels who will bow in submission to his authority. So in gospel application, two simple questions. One is, which kingdom are you part of? Because that's it. Whether what R.C. Sproul's, whether we acknowledge it or not, there are these two kingdoms. One is of God and one is of Satan. It's simply put that way. So which kingdom are you a part of? Because what I do know, what the Bible teaches is that today can be the day of repentance. Today can be the day to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has won the victory over Satan and over death, and we can partake in that that maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm dead. I'm dead in my sins. What can I do? Nothing. Jesus already did it. All you have to do is acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and love and cherish him and his commands as he has called us to do. And then finally, 
let's be bold and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority. I think, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm guilty of this, but I think sometimes I get a little timid. I get a little apologetic of the fact that I'm a Christian. I get apologetic of the fact that I'm a, I'm a pastor. Listen, we, we have the authority. It says that Gentiles will be saved in Acts 28, 28, but they cannot believe, they cannot hear without a preacher, without somebody telling them the truth. So let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's preach it, let's teach it, let's explain it, let's live it. And let's be bold to proclaim that gospel of Jesus Christ with authority. And let's go into that kingdom of darkness in which we have the authority because Satan's bound. And let's trash the joint. And let's do it together. I want to transition into communion. And this is something that we do every week. And this is something I don't want to become old. I don't want it to become an old hat. It's just something that we do. We partake of this, this meal together, or this symbolic meal that Jesus instituted Right, and every week I got to point out there's gluten-free over here, which there is. I know that's a dietary thing, right? And it kind of breaks up what we're talking about. But that's true. It's over here. But I want to look at what this actually represents. And I want us to remember that the juice, this bread, isn't simply just to remember that people's sins were once forgiven because of a lamb. Because that's what happens in that Passover meal when Jesus is sharing that, the, the, the last meal with his disciples, right, you, can, you can picture Michelangelo's or uh, Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci's uh, painting, right? It's inaccurate, but it works in our minds. He's having this meal with his disciples, and they're having this Passover meal, and he says, I have longed to have this meal with you. And they're remembering this lamb whose blood was shed over the mantle and doorpost in Egypt that happened thousands of years and Jesus changes the whole narrative. And he says, no longer are we going to remember a lamb whose blood was spilt to save the firstborn. But now let's remember the blood of the lamb of God. My blood, a fully God, fully man, my blood will be shed for you and it will actually take away the sins of the world. So let's take these elements of the blood of the bread and the juice and let's eat them to remember the fatal blow to Satan so that the gospel has authority that his kingdom has authority so let's take it as often as we take it in remembrance of that truth that Jesus has won the victory he has given his church authority now let's go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint for his name and for his honor and for his glory let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you that you've won the victory. I thank you that as we sang before I got up here, that you have walked out of the grave, that your name was Man of Sorrows. What a name! That you came to this earth, you took on flesh to suffer and to die for us because we cannot do it on our own. That we need Jesus, we need his blood to be able to remove our sins, not just the lamb, not just some sacrificial bull, but the actual lamb of God, the son of God, the son of man, the redeemer, the Messiah, that he had to come if we were ever going to see redemption because we are a sinful people. So God, I pray now that your spirit would move in individuals that say, I need Jesus. 
and would move and people would say, I'm on team Jesus. What can I do? What's the next step that I can do to proclaim the gospel and the glorious news of God who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light? So God, as we sing, as we pray, as we confess sins, as we take of these elements, God, I pray that it will be glorifying to you. Let your name be glorified and God, it will be glorified through Jesus Christ. And it's in his most beautiful, precious name that we pray. Amen.